I'm Doug Duran, a landowner trying to be a conservationist. I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. Judd McCollum from Working Class Bowhunter. Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is James Holtz. Joy Van Weingarten. Sam Sohold. Phil Ebert. Julie Meachin. And you are listening to the Prairie Farm. The Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm. Prairie Farm Podcast. Prairie Farm Podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Nick, why are we re-recording this episode? Because the one and only time that that ever happened was our first podcast where your mic took a dump on us. (laughs) And whenever people listen to our podcast now and they go back and they listen to the beginning, which is what we named that first episode. Very fitting. Wow. Your your mic's got way better. Your sound is so much better now. (laughs) Well. It was bad. And I tried to re-listen to it a couple months ago. Couldn't do it. It was so bad. Yep. Yep. So uh, it's such, it's our most important episode, honestly. And uh, uh, I firmly believe that. I know Nick does and, and Carol wouldn't, wouldn't say so because it's his story, but, but it's true. It is our most important story. None of this would be happening without the efforts of of our founder, Carol Hawksbergen, who is our return guest. And you've heard him on the podcast and other episodes too. He, he comes along sometimes when he's, when he's got a, he doesn't really ever have free moments, but when he's got a moment that he can, <laughs> he can spend and, and uh, share with us a little bit, he'll, he'll jump in. But uh, we it have, only took us like three months to find this free moment. That's right. To do this. <laughs> that's right. But I've kind of figured we'd, uh, we'd prime the pump here a little bit and, you know, your life has been agriculture. It's been around agriculture. Right. Yeah. You uh, were you born on this on this farm here? I was born right here on this homestead here, and uh, raised here till I was fourteen. And then we moved to Pala a little bit, and uh, spent ten years in Pala with my parents. And then I moved back to the farm probably in. 1980 or something like that but then the whole time you know we still farm to farm and dad mm-hmm. would before i had license to I think i moved to palo when i was 13 or so and then uh, my dad would bring me out here during the summer and just drop me off and uh, i would take care of the chores around the farm and uh yeah we had some livestock then some cattle yet stock cow herd but mainly you know my dad had confidence in me that i would do all the cultivating and weed mowing and just whatever it took around the farm mm-hmm. keep it going do you think your dad noticed that you just had like that knack for it pretty early on <laughs> oh he you know he knew that and just it just built upon him as i was getting older and, and uh and he had another he had another full-time job that he would go off and yeah he was trying to organize farmers you know he worked actually for the nfo national farmers organization where he would go out and uh recruit new members and encourage farmers to work together collectively bargaining for a price rather than what do you give me? What do you give me? He would Mm. get farmers to pool their hogs together and pool their grain together. And they would go to the Mm. supplier or the end users and say, this is what we got from our farmers. We need this. And, uh, and that worked pretty good. But then, you know, those those farmers are pretty independent and 
some people would uh, uh, take advantage. So the far. The NFO would hold grain off the market, you know, mm-hmm. and then the cash market would go up. And the key was to keep it off the market till it reached the point where you wanted to sell it. But then there's people who weren't members, you know, they would sell as soon as it had a bump in the price and, and kind of defeated the whole process. So mm-hmm. they, they were, farmers are always kind of independent and, and didn't want to collectively uh, work together as an organization to to work on uh on a better price yeah that's like the whole thing farmers never have to have a boss well usually their parent was their boss until you know they got a certain age and then you know don't want another boss so they're always kind of competitive you know if your neighbor would hold off and you know uh the next neighbor would sell you know so they didn't really work together so much as a Hmm. as an organized group where they could have you know they could say hey we need Eat this much and you know my dad was pretty uh you know he could see the future what ag was going to big production mm-hmm. farms and you know and now you know the pork industry's all gone to that and uh so that's kind of yeah how we got started farming in there so he did work off the farm organizing people before he would uh go out on the road he would just bring me out here and then he'd pick me up again about four four thirty five o'clock whatever it took yeah and i loved it here so uh, yeah i mean it's it's very clear that this is you're doing what you're meant to be doing and i think a lot of people f- eventually find what they're meant to do you know like i feel like that eventually happened to me it took me a while to get here but <laughs> but uh but you know most i think or not most but a lot of people don't you know they don't they don't get that chance and it's neat that your dad saw that in you and yeah grandpa told me you you started driving tractor real young what when when did you start driving tractors <laughs> oh i don't know quite young i don't know i can remember him uh he would plow these fields out here and uh before i went to school the bus would come around i don't know eight o'clock and i'd be out there early in the morning uh he wanted me to drag or pull Harl across what he plowed so it would crumble, wouldn't get so cloddy. Mm-hmm. And the fields are so rough, and I, you know, you'd have to stand up on them tractors and drag that Harl and around and around. And <laughs> he's so like, well, I, I don't want to do it. <laughs> you know, I, I probably was ten, I suppose, or, or younger. Wow, that's awesome! And and being allowed being allowed to grow up quick a little bit in that way and have that responsibility and right away you had equity in the ground, you know, from your own efforts. So, yeah. So it created a deep sense of value. Well, you know, you're already talking about some of the things that were different in that era of farming. And what's interesting is your, if, if we looked at kind of almost like school, your age class of farmers, they were in that kind of that, when you guys were kids was kind of the, the last what maybe decade of of kind of farming that the farming glory days you know here in right a lot of you know i had a lot of classmates so i graduated in 74 from high school i had a lot of classmates that didn't go to college they just guys like me they were raised on the farm they Mm -hmm. wanted to get into farming and i was the same way and (laughs) so we all jumped into you know farming then and uh so that was in the mid 70s how did that work if their dad's or getting their livelihood from the farm. 
how do they support, you know, another 20 year old? And I mean, it's fine when you're 18, 19, you still live with your parents. Right. It's not a big deal. But when you're 24, 26, you know. So it didn't work so good. You know, some farmers uh, stuck their neck out and expanded their operation, you know, rented more ground, bought mm. more equipment, you know, and then, you know, then high interest rates of the 80s kind of got them farmers in trouble. And, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah, I have several classmates that uh, were farming earlier than the farm crisis cleaned them out mm -hmm. and sometimes their their family operation too so so mm. that was in the mid 80s and i was guess i was kind of fortunate i was single and didn't really have to support a family but if i had to support a family on the income i was making back in the 80s it would not work so good <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. i just about you're it takes like beads nichols took day. a lot of money yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no I'm sure i did no <laughs> so, so yeah how how did you get you just basically made no money and ate whatever you could and <sighs> yeah well yeah i just got just got by and hmm. uh yeah, you know, the interest rates kind of killed everybody, you know. We're talking 16, you know, 17% interest at the bank, and that was taking all the profit off the farm, and, you know, yep. bankers were getting kind of grumpy, you know. And mm -hmm. was it, So when those interest rates came in, where it was really hitting people is when they'd have to maybe get out a line of credit for their operational year, right, to buy seed. Right. And, uh, and then – you know, year before it might have been down at you know seven eight percent, but then the next year it's jump. I think I was asking my grandpa about this because what's interesting is he's about let's see here. Well, he just turned eighty seven yesterday, so he's he's about twenty years older than you. So he would have been right. He would have been you know well into his operation at the time when when uh, you were getting started, but that was. So those were the guys that all had families. And fortunately for him, he kind of just stayed the course with what he was doing. But but a lot, like he said, a lot of other guys that were especially in the situation that Nick brought up, which is really interesting, their sons were getting to of age and they wanted to include him in the operation. Mm -hmm. And so they, and confinements were coming along at that time too. And so they'd build these large confinement sheds or they'd, They'd uh, buy more land, try and increase the size of their operation, then boom, that that operational year is what – was that what would kill them, just that one year basically on those really high interest rates? Well, I think it was, you know, through the mid-'80s. Anything you did in, in the ag, whether it's livestock or whatever, you weren't making any money, you know. You're just kind of mm. holding your weight, and, and you're kind of, you know, running off the equity you had in land, you know. Mm -hmm. And land mm -hmm. values were dropping. Mm -hmm. Farmers were foreclosing and they're, you know, putting a lot of land on the market. And then mm -hmm. the more land that went on the market, that kept driving prices down on land values. Mm -hmm. So. How'd your grandpa survive? Well, actually, he had to give up a farm. Really? Yeah. He, uh, he bought one probably. So I bought part of this farm off of him. And supplied some cash for him and he wanted to reinvest it in land and a lot of farmers did back then and uh so he did that and uh and then the farm crisis hit and pretty soon he had a private uh contract with the original landowner hmm. and pretty soon you know he started doing uh appraisal on your land and you still owe more against it than what you uh, uh 
that it's worth today. Mm-hmm. And then you have to sit back and reevaluate what you're doing here. So mm-hmm. he decided, you know, take it in the shorts on that and just give the land back to the original owner. Mm-hmm. And the owners usually would take it back. Some of them didn't want to take it back. Or some of them would drop the the price a little bit for farmers, negotiate a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, So he lost all the money he had put into that farm. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a sad deal. And, you know, he was getting up there in age, too, where, he, you know, he was getting tired of fighting it and, you know, the farm economy. And so he just mm. decided to walk away from some of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, if he could have just hung on, he probably could have. But, uh, you know, he'd been much better off here, you know, today if he would have been able to hang on to that land. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you never know the future. You know, you don't, it drops a little bit. You could hold on. Oh, it'll go back up, but it could drop for three straight years, you know, and then you're in trouble. But yeah. Yeah. And that could happen yet today with some of the high price land, you know, if it starts dropping and yeah, especially because we were just talking like three weeks ago, corn dropped, basically plummeted from high fives to mid to low fours, Mm -hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden people have to figure out. Because that might not, like a dollar might not seem a lot to people, but yeah. that is, that's start, 20% yeah, of the farmer's income. Start multiplying by bushels and, and yeah. acres, and yeah. it becomes a lot real quick. I mean, Absolutely. some farmers, it could easily be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah. Know, yeah. Easy. Well, I think when I, I think when my wife and I moved to this area back in 2021, I think corn was, was around $7, maybe even better. And we just checked a couple of days ago, it was down to four forty-five a bushel. That's right. You know, so think of yeah. You know, and I think that wasn't even the highest. I think it got up to seven <laughs> seven fifty within a six month window. There, you know, when it really spiked, and and beans were up real high then too. So you figure how much money farmers right, and that increased the uh, the rent and also increased the uh, land values and uh, yeah. So yeah. now you lowered what that piece of you know ground can return, and you know, and then you got to wonder what am I doing here? Yep. Yeah. And the cost of equipment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That happened with houses too recently in 2021 when houses, so we yeah, bought our spiked. house right before it spiked. Yeah. We bought a house for $80,000. It spiked to 160, right? So people would go out and they take out these big <clears throat> loans to buy boats or, you know, whatever. Maybe they need it for a medical mm-hmm. thing. I don't know. But they, there are a lot of people who took out loans between that 80 and 160. And now you're probably capped at about 140 there. But then the prices simmered. They didn't go back down to 80, but, like my, my house, I think is appraised at 132 now. Yeah. So the so if I had taken out a loan for all 160 and then it simmers back, you know that that gets you in deep doo doo. Yeah. Thankfully, I did not do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's a it's a real application that I think people can that haven't ever farmed or maybe don't come from a farming family they can relate to in that sense. So it's it's a good example. So you know we're talking about it. We're far. Farming is still going on the old way, so to speak, at this time. <clears throat> Most, well, let's just start with the first thing. Were there a lot more farmers then than oh, there yeah. are now? You know, you go down the gravel road here, there was, you know, everybody was a farmer who had land. And, that, you know, they were farming, you know, two, maybe the big farmers were farming up to four or four, 500 acres, you know. And, and that was considered big back then in the 70s. And, uh. So we were doing more tillage in it, so it took longer to plant an acre, mm-hmm. work the ground, and and uh, yeah, p- to prepare it, and so it just it it took longer. So farmers couldn't really 
uh, farming more acres is due to the manpower and the time mm-hmm. it took to, to plant that. So that's interesting. I never heard that point before. That's so yeah. Nowadays it's you know kind of gone no till and herbicides and spray and you know and you know you're talking your 16 row planters and 24 row planters and you know they can plant a lot of corn a day and mm-hmm. and, and seed that. tenders right yeah seed tenders would feed the planters rather than the guy in <laughs> the end tearing the bags open pouring them in yeah Car- carol is the seed tender here at, <laughs> at hoxie yeah. how, how many of those bags of soybeans oh i done a lot so i uh well quick story is uh i started farming there in the mid 70s in 76 and uh by 1980 i was starting to looking at uh no-till soybeans and so and mm-hmm. i got that pretty well working this is before glyphosate roundup ready soybeans which really made no-till beans and no-till corn take off with those herbicide resistant uh hybrids but uh so i started no-till dilly-dallying around in that and i uh you know had a pretty good reputation and i knew what i was doing and then i you know guys would ask me to no-till their their soybeans and corn stalks. And I'm, you know, I started that in 1980, and you know, and I had a no-till soybean plant business, you know, all through the 80s and into the hmm. early 90s. Hmm. Did a lot of custom planting. A lot of custom planting for people, and so I tore a lot of bags open. <laughs> <laughs> and I was younger then, and didn't you know? Did you just get them. sick of it after a while, or? Oh, uh, I did. I think people got. There was such a demand there for a while. People were very patient for me to get there, but it, you know, I only had a. That's a narrow window of time. It's not yeah, like you can just push it back right. into July. So a lot of guys stayed with me, and then pretty soon, you know, they land up, uh, start doing themselves their own planners. You know, once I, they seen how good it worked, and mm-hmm. so that was quite a hill to to, uh, to to go over is the transition of from tillage to no till and. And I had a lot of trouble with people in the 80s, you know. They would drive by just to look at those beans coming up in the corn stalks. Mm. A lot of people, says, you know. They'd just be rubbernecking out in the neighborhood. Be rubbernecking, <laughs> seeing how, how it looked, but, you know. But yet they wouldn't do their own ground. They were just observing or mm-hmm. or some of these landlords would say, well, they'd never have a tenant do that to their ground. And, you know. Pretty well, most of them guys are of eight crow, and guys are no till, like it's you know, yeah, oh yeah, no it's, big deal. So yeah, if, if a guy went out to do it with full tillage now, people would be like, "What are you doing out there?" Right. It's, yeah, I know. I see people when they till their field. I'm like, "What? Why?" <laughs> well, but it, yeah, it just shows that that uh, you know what you were doing was was really ahead of its time. It was, and I, you know, I I worked with. Uh, BASF herbicide company. They made some post-emergent soybean killers for grass and also uh, for broadleaves. And and I did some speaking at some other winter meetings, you know, about no-till and, mm-hmm. and answer questions from farmers who were thinking to go that process of farming. And, and uh, yeah, so that was quite a challenge to learn how to do that. And I put on several field days here and but uh yeah i guess uh good lord kind of turned me away from uh row crops and got me into the native grass seed business mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And Lord knows there's a challenge there on everything you do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. And the no-till beans and corns, you know, it's, it's not really a challenge like it used to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you're talking about those field days, which I know we got to, this is another rabbit trail here, but there's a great field day demonstration story that kind of shows you the character of, of Carol. Can you tell a story about when you had the field fired and you had to go and the guy was burning up your brake in your tractor? At the uh, at the yeah. demonstration, you had to go uh, go kick him out and show everyone how to do it the right way. That was a tough day. So yeah, we were bailing Old Prairie up in the spring, and it's about the first of May, and we had mowed it down and we we're raking and bailing it, and and uh, yeah, Vermeer Manufacturing uh, would come out in the spring and with some of their new models of balers and. And want to test them, you know, because mm-hmm. they've been sitting around all winter long. The engineers have with their new, new balers and wanted to get some bales on them to see how yeah. they operated. So we had lined up a date for them to come out, and and uh, they wanted my baler out there too, which was the previous model with the, that they were testing to compare the, the size of bales and the tightness and just how they worked. And anyway, the bearing went out on my baler. I think it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. It wasn't much to do. I got started early, and Vermeers were coming about 1 o'clock. And uh, the bearing <laughs> landed up starting the, the field on fire. And uh, so it was going down the windrow underneath my tractor. I looked back and seen fire back there, and I got the tractor off the windrow, and and I got the fire out on the baler. And, but the fire was still coming out of the south, and my windrows were running north and south. And and uh, oh no so it was going down that windrow and that i had been bailing and uh so i was thought well maybe i can get this thing put out there's about i don't know 30 40 yards ahead was a dirt lane we had across the the wind windrow so there was nothing growing there so i went up there and uh scratched off all the hay off that old dirt windrow and i was going to use that for a fire stop and uh, so that worked quite well. Stopped the fire right there on that dirt track, but still the fire was wanting to go left to right of the windrow. That <laughs> so I was stomping that out and trying to get that from going into the next windrow. And anyway, but then a wind came along and started the couldn't couldn't keep up with the fire that was going left to right with my stomp with my your feet. feet. Yeah, my feet were getting hot. <laughs> And I uh, got in another wind row, and then I decided to call the fire department. And anyway, long story short, the fire department got put out. And then I called Vermeers, and I said, hey, I got such and such a bear- bearing went out. So, they, yeah, no problem. We'll bring a bearing out when we come. And so they, I said, well, I'm going home and get the smoke out of my hair and my eyes and, and take a look at my feet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I come back probably – you know, we had the fire out by noon, I guess. I come back out there at two o'clock in the afternoon, and yeah, Vermeers had my tractor and baler up and rolling again, and they had their tractor and baler, and they were bailing like mad. But uh, they had an engineer in my <laughs> tractor. I said, "Man, you know, I stand to next to another engineer." I said, "I think that tractor of mine's pulling awful hard," and 
And I looked at the engineer and I was standing next to it. I said, you know what? I think he's got my park brake on. <laughs> <laughs> so I ran over there and uh, got him out of the tractor cab. And I said, my feet might be burnt, but my butt's okay. I can <laughs> sit in the seat and bail. <laughs> so I did that the rest of the day and bailed it. And it went all right. Landed up getting some pretty severe burns, blisters on my feet. And yeah, I mean, had to go to wound care. Is that, that when you, uh, uh, let's see. You were in the, Nama. you were in the picture at this point. Oh right? yeah. 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 Nick yeah. was playing soccer. I, I was playing soccer. Yeah. And Nama got a bowl of water ready for it. You remember yeah, that? Yeah, I remember that. I don't know if you want to hear that story or not. But. Oh man. Yeah. You better tell it. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so I think it was, this happened all on a Friday. The fire was and Saturday. We went back out there and moved all the bales off the field and I was still hobbling around. And then uh, following Monday, Nicholas had a soccer game in Paris City or Monroe someplace. Something Monroe. like that, yeah. We went to that and get home that night, and my ankles were starting to swell up. And Namo, uh, my mother-in-law, says, hey, you you might get infection in that thing. You know, you better get to the doctor. So we made called the doctor and made an appointment for the next day to go see him and time being she rigged up this concoction of uh, epsom salt and hot water and told me to soak my feet in it, not knowing it was epsom salt i plopped my feet down in there with raw blisters from the fire and oh, man I, I jumped out of the chair and <laughs> rolled across the bed <laughs> <laughs> my wife never seen a guy in so much pain before <laughs> I didn't know what I stuck my feet into, and I tried to get over the shower to rinse that off. That hurt like the devil. Oh, I bet. And uh, <laughs> were yeah. you home when that happened? I don't remember that at all. No. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the the whole story just—I mean, the the reason I bring it up because it shows how Carol has been there to for the farming community as a whole for a long time. Whether it's demonstrating equipment like he was that day and going through the extra work to. You know, the, you might, I don't know, You ne- I never heard the compensation side of that story, but maybe you got, you know, a nice little check, but that's still time away from getting your other stuff done here. And, and but you've been willing to participate in that stuff because <clears throat> you know that it's important and you care about farming and you care about, about uh, leaving things better than, than you got them. And, um, you know, I think that, 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 is most evident when people come out here to Hoxie. And now we have demonstration day every year called Prairie Appreciation Day. And people get to see that that vision that's happened. You know, in I have to be careful sometimes because I like to romanticize about those old days of farming. And I got just a little glimpse of it when I was a real little guy and grandpa was still, because he was from that, you know, he was, that was a dying breed of farmer when I was a kid. You know, these were the guys that were now retiring and, and, and getting out of it. But I still. Yeah, they seen some glory days in farming and, you know, in Mm -hmm. the early seventies, corn got to three bucks and, you know, and guys made a lot of money on $3 corn. Mm Mm-hmm. And they got gun ho and then didn't think corn ever go down to a buck and a half. And three years right. later, it did. It dropped half its value. Some of what it's doing yeah. today. So. Yep. Yeah. And, and you know, so those things changed. And, and you know, when my 
Well, my grandpa was was really young, which I think it'd be fun to get him and his brother on the show sometime to talk about some of this stuff. But they were still doing planning <clears throat> with horses, you know. And it's easy to to think back to those days and wish it was all that way. But from a conservation standpoint, just like with the no-till practice that you adopted, there were a lot of things that were done in that era that were not good for the land. And absolutely, and you think of uh, you know some of the runoff issues with with livestock. Some of the that goes back to the days when I uh, my dad would drop me off here and do the field cultivating of the corn. You know, mm-hmm. and I still remember. You know, we had a pretty hard rain a few days ago, and it was you know getting June, and and the <clears throat> ground was drying pretty good. And I started cultivating, and I went down this little uh, hill, and down below was a grass waterway, and I was going to raise up the cultivator and go to the other side, and notice there was a lot of dirt in there while it was all slip dirt. Hmm. Oh, no. I got in there, and it was just wet and not dry, and I buried the tractor and the cultivator, and... Because it all run off, you're saying, and it the, run down the hill from. That's a problem with uh, cultivation, with the creates those grooves, grooves, and give a channel for water to run. Mm. That's why they wanted farmers to contour, you know, mm-hmm. to keep that water from going down that row groove mm. of the cultivator shank. Mm-hmm. So we had some, you know, we didn't have real steep hills, so it really didn't make sense to contour that. But uh, but it it washed down there from the earlier cultivation. And uh, I guess I was just trying to, I didn't know. I was just just trying to close up some of those gullies and then get down the bottom of that waterway and it was slip dirt. And I knew that was not right. I couldn't Mm. keep farming like that. It's losing our topsoil Mm. down here. So that kind of, you know, start thinking me about better ways of uh, farming rather than do that full mechanical tillage. Yeah. Work to, to plant a crop and harvest it well and that's the that's the power of paying attention you know what i mean i mean that's pretty being observant what's going on mature for a young guy to be like hey (laughs) there's not more of this being made up upstream from this right now right this is this is it this is how to scrape all the mud out from around the tires and and the fenders that was really bad (laughs) i'll never forget that (laughs) yeah so so i mean there was stuff like that and then what about the attitude towards like uh, wildlife and habitat, did what did farming was there? Did did the average farmer care much about that stuff back in the the old days of farming, or was it? Um, no, they kind of you know, kind of. I guess we kind of took it for granted the pheasants and the wildlife and the quail, and mm. you know, uh, farms were so diversified with hay and oats and uh, you know corn and and guys wouldn't raise much soybeans if they're going to raise soybeans you know they would always put that on their level or ground flat ground and just do the rotation hay alfalfa and oats on the other and then they had livestock so that kept uh you know some cover for you know the nesting and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing and uh yes and, you know, we didn't have a problem with no birds. We had plenty of pheasants, mm-hmm. plenty of quail. And uh, today we don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so kind of a thing that was taken for granted and now, in a large way, a thing that's been forgotten. You know, people. Right, that, people good... don't remember those days. And 
And I guess, uh, you know, people like to hunt pheasants more back then than, mm-hmm. you know, the offspring, young guys did. You know, in high school, I can still remember, you know, we'd get a group of guys together, go out opening day and and uh, do some pheasant hunting. And today you don't hear too much about that or you no. just want to do that. Yeah. There's a few out there that do it yet, but it's very rare. And, and uh, that, that was, I think, you know, we've talked about how hunting and conservation go together. You know, sometimes people will say, we talked about this with our good friend, Doug, you know, he doesn't like the phrase that a hunter is a conservationist. He'd say some hunters are, you know, and, and, uh, but, but what I think hunting helps with, so it doesn't automatically make somebody a conservationist. I don't think, but it puts you in connection with the land and you start to observe those things and see and have that value. And when it comes to starting Hoxie, that's, I mean, that's our, that's our logo, the pheasant. That's kind of how it got started, right? You had a, a friend, was his name Larry? Yeah. So, yeah, I started farming there in uh, 76 and and uh, met Larry Mulder. He was, uh, he's from Minnesota, Renville, Minnesota. His dad started a tractor reconditioning company called K&M Manufacturing. And farmers yet today will know about K&M Manufacturing because they got into reconditioning there's tractor some, there's seats. There's some K&M stuff around here. I've always wondered. Oh, what, yeah. What, I didn't realize that was the that Larry's business. company. So Larry was uh, he's from Renville, Minnesota, and he moved to Pella, Iowa, and kind of run a, a region down here in Iowa and Missouri and Illinois. He would run a route and call on machinery dealers and mm-hmm. and take orders and deliver seats whether it was an old M seat that they reconditioned or whether it's a, a late model tractor and they had all the seats that would go for those things. But anyway, I got to know Larry through some city league basketball games and, uh, yeah. And, uh, he was on our team and then afterwards we'd get together and do a little wind down, maybe have a beer or two. And, uh, and just talk about things and mm-hmm. become very close. And he had a little Brittany dog, uh, called Brits. Uh, he said, hey, Hoxie, you got any? Because he called me Hoxie all the time. <laughs> and uh, you got any place we could hunt? And, you know, and I said, oh, I don't know. We we were corn beating and everything. I really didn't have any habitat for them, and that always kind of bothered me because mm-hmm. uh, we were such row crop farmers back then. And but I would notice after sitting out the old house here, I would notice uh, south of my driveway, and uh, we had a cornfield, and to the east was the highway. But anyway, those pheasants at night, it's you know close to sunset, they start jumping up out of my cornfield, and fly across my road ditch on my side of the highway, which was east of the this cornfield. And they fly across the highway, and then they would land on the other side in the ditch. Then on the other side of the fence, on the other side was another cornfield or soybean field. And I just couldn't figure out what, what, why are they leaving every night? And, mm. uh, you know, so I start looking at their cover on the other side. And when they graded this county blacktop here, probably in the, I think it was late 60s, Jasper County. Uh, was starting to experiment with native plants and grasses 
for roadside mm. ditches. So they graded the road, they had to reseed the ditches. So on my side of the road, they seeded it with brome and yeah, whatever else. But it happened to be right across the road for me uh, was uh, some native prairie they threw out there. And you know, I uh, didn't really know what that native prairie grasses was. And I start telling the old story to an old retired veteran, veterinarian in Linville, called him Doc Fitzpatrick. And he's well, uh, he says, they got native plants, the county seeding them out there. And there's two places between this homestead here where I live and, and uh, Linville, they'd thrown out native plants, native grasses. It had to be one of them was right across from the house where I lived. Mm. So I was observant to see those pheasants going over there every night and, and uh, look for cover. Yeah. And then they would come back again in the morning and feed in the corn stalks and cornfields. So then I uh, said, all right, where can I get some of this native grasses? And, and Doc Fitzpatrick, he was already playing around with uh, big blue stem and little blue for doc was kind of retired from the medicine and he had a still had a small stock cow herd mm-hmm. and he was using uh, big blue and in little blue and indian grass to uh to feed on his his stock cow herd oh, because okay. the native plants would stay green during august when all the other cool season grasses would be going dormant so he mm-hmm. kept his pastures producing food for his cattle so he connected me with a company out of uh, nebraska and uh so uh i one of the favorite grasses i seen growing in the ditch across the highway there was indian grass so i started out with indian grass and uh so this had to be 1981 or 82 uh the government had a set aside acre program going on for farmers in order to be eligible for government subsidies they would have to idle 10 percent of their corn base so every farmer had a history base corn base mm-hmm. and they would have to idle i think five percent of their corn base so if they had a 100 acres corn base and had a 200 acre farm 100 of it was uh, had a history of being uh, per year of corn then to be eligible you would have to idle sure five acres so all right so there was some rolling ground down by my pond there as you guys know and there was pasture down there i said well maybe i can get this stuff growing on this set aside acres mm-hmm and then uh, also kill out this uh, cow pasture. Uh, farm crisis was coming on, was making him money with the stock cow herd, so we decided to get rid of the cows. I did, mm-hmm. and, and then uh, create some more habitat for the pheasants to hang out. And Roundup was just coming out then, and and uh, so I went in there and sprayed the the old cow pasture with glyphosate or Roundup and killed it and uh got some of this indian grass from uh, nebraska and and old doc he offered to help me get that planted and get it started mm-hmm. and he was kind of a rookie too how to get it grown but we i made every mistake in the book <laughs> wrong. and uh so i tilled the ground even the cow pasture that uh 
tilled it as in distance several times and had it really laying nice and level and mm-hmm. and then uh, doc knew where i can get a native grass seed drill from the county conservation board jasper county conservation board where he had borrowed a drill from earlier and it was just like a little five foot drill mm-hmm. it took forever but so we planted <laughs> that and and then doc would follow me up with uh, his old johnny popper yeah, I'm going to interject here. You can see a video of that exact tractor. I'm going to have Nicholas posted on Instagram after mm. this. After this, uh, but uh, his son uh, Sean, right? Sean, he came Saturday. to our Prairie Appreciation Day. He's like, "Hey, I know who you're talking about. That's my dad, and I still have that tractor." Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He drove it up, and it, man, those kind of tractors—they sound like they're dying. Oh yeah, sound <laughs> like on their Johnny, last breath. Johnny but. Popper, that's the best name for it. Yeah, they they had a miss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you ever heard someone like an older person cough and you're like whoa that this might be it for them that's it's that but in a tractor form yeah, yeah. when those old johnny poppers are pulling hard you think they're gonna die you know it's like a yeah. one big step to the next compression stroke and you think you, know, you lost fire in the hole and by god that thing's still alive yeah <laughs> Well, and you had to start those old diesels with a, ga- a yeah. gas pony motor, too. Yeah, this one, uh, he had a diesel. I don't know whether it was a 70-30. I don't know what it was. I can't remember. But uh, Sean would know. But uh, So they had a little pony motor, gasling pony motor on there, and they'd have to start first. And that was their starter motor for the, the John Deere. Because they had such big cylinders in there. You, yeah. They needed a pretty good starter to crank them things over, so they yeah. used a little gasoline thing. So, yeah, Doc Fitzpatrick, he followed me around the field, and and uh, he collapacked it. Okay. Pulling oh, collop. so you disked it up, you yeah, put pack. it in the ground, and then you cold packed it. He was rolling it, packing it. Yeah, we that exact over. thing we tell people not to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to see him anymore, uh, you know, from my experience, to call a packet before they plant it. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Because we planted it, and we got the seed in too deep, and uh, it never came and never came. And mm-hmm. and uh, so we had a lot of foxtail coming. And, and I finally had to uh, – I'd done a dormant seeding in, during the winter and snow. I got the old, you know, native grass drill back and bought some more Indian grass and, and went over it through a, a light layer of snow and replanted it. And then some of that came. But uh, so it, it come about, I don't know, 84, 85, 1984, 85. I uh, started getting prairie showing up and the government says, all right, you know, Farmers, we're going to subsidize you. You don't have to idle any ground. We don't have to. You don't have to control your supply because that was part of the reason of idling mm. ground would take some of those acres and short the the bushels that were actually coming on the market that would mm. raise the price. Why did know. they? What was their? What was their goal of taking away the? Actually, it was uh, our secretary Butts. Yeah, he was kind of gun ho on big farms. Earl, get, right? Earl, Earl Butts. Yeah, get bigger, get out. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was the point of that? Why did they need more corn? I don't understand. <laughs> well, they were opening up global markets, right? They right. Were, they were we were hoping to sell oh, Russia. And- I wonder if that if that relates to when Cargill was getting huge, because Cargill's like the seventh biggest company in the world, or or biggest private com- owned company. Yeah, in the world I think or something uh, like that. But mid eighties, I don't know when Cargill actually started down there at Eddyville, Iowa. But it, you know, that wasn't our market at first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
our market was local elevator, mm-hmm. ADM. A lot of corn went to Muscatine, Iowa. Mm-hmm. ADM, I think, had a plant there. GPC, now they call that. Down there. What do they? What? What did they do with it back? Actually, then? they would put it on barges and send it down the <laughs> mm-hmm. Mississippi for uh, well, export. Yeah, yeah no, I think you're right. I think that might be ADM. That GPC is another company that buys a lot of corn, and they, I think they they process it into corn products but they're still mm. oper- operating there too i always uh i was joking with my friend who's a who's a farmer he, he does row crop and we were joking that farmers uh uh single-handedly keep uh keep the corn market alive with how much mountain dew they drink from all the corn <laughs> service there. <laughs> right yeah but anyway sorry so, so yeah they uh opened that up so i was either i just got my indian grass to grow on these set aside acres and now i had a, you know to get some revenue off of that i had to put it back into corn mm. beans because it was it was not like you know you wasn't getting the program money or wasn't getting any money you know i didn't get any benefits yeah, of just, on that ground and now i'm you know they just treated it like hobby acres for you basically right and i was creating it as habitat acres mm-hmm. to get the pheasant star now i had it going finally and i'll tell you a quick little story about after i got it going you know doc fitzpatrick said oh, you ought to put a fire to that you know get you know it does a lot of good you know and in year three and four of getting it established so yeah me and roscoe went out there and good friend of mine i don't know roscoe was there for the fire oh yeah just me and roscoe <laughs> it was, we Seems didn't have enough fitting. next <laughs> next time next time i see him i'm gonna ask him about that <laughs> yeah probably blame me for it. lung <laughs> cancer today <laughs> poor guy <laughs> yeah he's he's struggling with cancer a little bit mm-hmm. anyway he had a big heart so he helped me on that fire and he's actually a volunteer fire department for the linville fire department over here and uh so we started a fire in there and uh when i originally killed out part of that cow pasture there was a part of the pasture that had been overcome so thick with native cedar trees that you know it was only about a third of an acre maybe a quarter of an acre of that whole pasture and i so i kind of didn't go into that part of the cow pasture because there's trees growing you know 20 foot tall cedar trees but when we got the fire going the fire got in them cedar trees and uh just licked right up them top of them thing we had like 40 foot flames above them cedar trees Man, Man. <laughs> me and Roscoe's eyes just got kind of big. <laughs> That's not, well. This is here's one of Carol's favorite lines. Nick and I were just talking about, or one of our favorite lines of Carol's. That's not good. That's <laughs> yeah, not good. That was not good. That's great. So you just had to stand by and watch these. Yeah, trees but burn. it turned out to be good. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the amazing thing about it. Because uh, after the fire, we went in there and. uh I cut off all the trees ground level. Had to deal with all them stumps yet. And I said, well, just cut them off flush with the ground. And, uh, you know, when I get enough seed to harvest off this Indian grass that I just planted, I'll throw some back out there, get that part seeded down too. Well, lo and behold, that very fall, uh, I had native grasses coming up and, uh, I've never planted them. It was like big blue and little blue and a few plants of Indian grass and some cord grass and some uh, some few wildflowers in there. So that kind of got me excited. As I says, man, this stuff was here. It mm-hmm. probably was all through this cow pasture. 
but I went and sprayed everything and killed it all out. Mm -hmm. But these plants stayed alive underneath those cedar trees. And How soon, long were those cedar trees there? Oh, they were, That means those things were old. They were old. They had the ground shaded underneath them and the dropping of needles mm -hmm. that none of the cool season pasture grasses would grow underneath them cedar wow. trees. Oh, so it eliminated the cool season competition. Competition of the cool season grasses. The roots are shallow with them, and they, and they can't take a you know that kind of a situation year in year out. They'll mm -hmm. eventually die out. So these native plants that came up that very following year, you know, they had root system that was deep in the ground, and you took away the competition of the trees and uh, the cool season grasses, and they just blossom this came alive had those mm. uh cedar trees been there since you were a kid or uh they they just start coming on thicker and thicker and it okay. was a cow pasture and the cows you know would go in there some but they didn't like going in there yeah mm -hmm. and uh they weren't cows back then or not not like the buffaloes who would like to go in there and scratch and rub on them cedar mm. trees to to take them out yeah that's like, true so that's what happened there. So I uh, got excited over that, that, you know, I had uh, native native plants here that uh, I didn't plant there. I got it, that area registered with the state of Iowa as being a remnant. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to do my seed collection for Big Blue and Little Blue out of there. And so every big blue and little blue plant that's on this farm today, the seed came mm. from that little prairie remnant. That's awesome. And at first I had to go in there and hand collect it by hand, pull the seeds out of there. Mm -hmm. And uh, things in the prairie industry, when I started planting prairie, it was big blue stem was big blue, Indian grass was Indian grass. And then about, yeah, mid 80s, I starting to realize there's big blue stem grown in Texas. It's also grown in up in Canada, all through the tall grass region here. Mm -hmm. But it had different maturities of what zones it came from in the, through the United States. Mm -hmm. And the DOT of Iowa was starting to get big and putting native plants in their roadside vegetation. And say, hey, uh, we want source identified seed. We want to know where the source of the seed came from. Cause not all big blue stems the same. It has different maturities mm -hmm. from different parts. And depending on where it is, it'll get a different height and yeah. or different length of life of the plant. Mm. Yeah. So they have stuff in Texas has a, takes more heat units to get it mature. Mm -hmm. So you can plant it up here and probably get it up, but our frost date might uh, take it out due to uh, our early frost. Mm hmm and seed it hmm. mature maturity yet. Mm -hmm. So then I started my big blue stem off of that and little blue and and uh, it took a long time because I think every time I collect seed off of that little remnant, I have enough maybe to plant half an acre of big blue and less of that of little blue. And uh, so I finally got that up and growing and and the industry was going to source identified seed and I wanted to sell this Indian grass that I originally planted, but the source of that I didn't really have other than it was Nebraska <clears throat> source. Right. And so I found another prairie remnant not too far south of here in Mahassa County along a dirt road and it had a lot of Indian grass. So I went in there and hand collected Indian grass 
And for Isle Crop Improvement Association, who inspect your fields for purity or seed, mm-hmm. where you got it, and they also check for isolation. Mm-hmm. So you can't just take Indian grass from Mahaska County, Isle, and plant it right next to this Nebraska stuff because they wouldn't certify that because it's worried about cross-pollinating. Sure. And uh, you might have a off-breed there. So mm-hmm. I had to keep about a quarter-mile isolation. So I started that on the south side of this farm along the mm-hmm. Kyline Road here. The new Indian grass you're the saying? The new Indian grass. And then uh, eventually I had to kill out all that Indian grass that me and Fitzpatrick planted and me and Roscoe tried to burn up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then I put it back to row crop and then finally got everything switched back to this Indian grass from Mahaska County. My big blue stem and little blue was okay. but mm-hmm. mm. And since then I expanded into other things. Who like, were you selling to at first? Because they didn't have like the robust CRP programs they had now. Oh, they not so much the real no. There was not. They had the conservation reserve program going, but it wasn't really calling for the, the native species. They didn't care about brome or mm-hmm. that's what they basically wanted people to put in. So I was selling it to uh, custom seed service uh, from Walnut Isle. I sold them a bunch, and they would sell it to. Uh, couple other projects around and you know but the non-identified source of seed like indian grass wasn't bringing near the value of source identified seed so mm-hmm. it was it was a hard product to sell mm-hmm. yeah so yeah that's interesting because now we get calls all the time you know hey you got seed you got seed for my yard for my field for my acreage right. and but i can't imagine people back then calling you up wanting the, the seed no it was, it was it was relatively tough you know mm-hmm. and yeah so it's that's one of the things about prairie you know you can plant it or production field up for example indian grass but you might not get a return off of that right. for three or four years to start expanding your acres and hit the market so yeah. just yesterday i had a gentleman that uh called because he wants to get into native seed he, he doesn't care whether he's growing it or he's helping plant it and and he's out in a different state but uh, i told him i said well unless you got a bunch of money sitting around or a lot of land equity sitting around you probably your best bet is an acre or two of forbes you know not very much you know something that if you lost 1500 bucks on it you'd be okay as opposed to plant 40 acres of something right. and being like e, you know if this does you know, I have to wait two years before I get any money. Yeah, I couldn't, you know, I wanted to get in the grass seed business. My friend Larry, you know, uh, he liked to hunt. And once we got it going here, he encouraged me to get into the seed business and try selling it. Mm-hmm. And whether it was Two Pheasants Forever or whoever that started expanding on that. And uh, so he encouraged me to start the Hoxie seed business and and there again, like we said, it was the pheasant that uh, caught my eye on his mm-hmm. on his habitat where he wanted to go at night. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was fitting to put him as a yeah as an icon for our business here. Absolutely, and uh, it's what he helped start get going here. So it's been very challenging, you know. Like you said, Nick, the market wasn't out there really for the seed for other than a few diehards, you know, mm-hmm. like me. But but things have turned, you know. They start putting in CRP acres, you know, and creating demand here and for that type of seed. And 
So, yeah. And, I, you know, at first, you know, I, you, I couldn't see down much of this farm. I still had was raising corn soybeans. Yeah, you had to make income. Yeah, I had a you... farm payment yet. Hmm. What? And, a, sorry. I, go ahead. Oh, what was your first flower? Because you talk about starting grasses, and I don't think we covered this last time we went over. Ah, first flower, I think uh, round-headed bush clover. Hmm. Really? Yeah, and some black-eyed Susan. Oh, man. What? So what? You were like, well, I'm doing grasses. I'm hearing all this about wildflowers. I should give it a go. Or I just was interested in trying it. And one of the neighbors guys up here, his name was Harold Gertz. He was an old guy, and he'd stop in here once in a while, and he was excited about what I was doing. Hmm. And he kind of introduced me. He had this, you know, I told him I wanted to harvest this stuff, whether it was big blue or indie grass. He kind of said, hey, I got these old uh, Alice Chalmers 66 Combine. And he had one. He had one that was in perfect shape. And old Harold, he he would clean a harvest a lot of uh, red clover in the fall, hmm. and he'd use this old AC combine hmm. to harvest that little. Was red it clover. already old by the time? That oh yeah, you, oh, yeah. Man. But it was in good shape. He kept it inside and kept it in really good shape. So he uh, showed me how that worked, and you know, showed me those hundred and one grease certs on him. That's right. Yep. <laughs> I'm the white collar greaser here at Hansi. <laughs> Short story is, kid showed up one day with a white shirt. First time to grease a combine. And I told him to grease that old combine, one of those old 66s, and he come back with grease all over his shirt. So I start calling him the white collar greaser. That's right. <laughs> yep, yep. I left the white collar world for the blue collar world, but, yeah. I, but I kept my Teacher shirt. Teacher to greaser. <laughs> yeah, be your book title one day. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's it's so neat to hear about all these people. I got to think, you know, when I'm out in the field, like I can see, you know, when there's, you know, a species that doesn't belong somewhere, I think, oh, I got to get rid of that, you know, or. Mm -hmm. or that needs hoed or, or sprayed or whatever. But I imagine when you see red clover out there, you think of your old friend Harold or when right. you see, yeah. if, you, if you, if you see, you know, some round headed bush clover gr growing somewhere, you think of those first years or do you, do you, when you're out there, I think that's part of owning land that people who, who maybe don't own land or who aren't connected to the land in some way, do those faces come flashing back to you all the time when you're out there and thinking about the years of, of Hoxie and your Oh, operation? they sure do. They got me, you know, thinking about these native species and how to harvest them. And, and uh, like, for example, Harold, he never harvested. He might have, I don't know. He harvested some switchgrass with that combine for Linville Seed Company, the Turfster mm. Boys out of Linville here. They had a, they run a seed soybean business and a grass seed business but you know and they raise a lot of crown betch around here but uh harold they had a switchgrass field so harold went out there with that old ac 66 and harvest switchgrass for him and it worked good hmm. so yeah I, I think about that and uh yeah i'm very thankful that harold landed up giving me that combine mm -hmm. what a gift to, yeah he knew I'd put it to good use, and I have, and I've, I still got it yet today. I'm not so quite sure I can point it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. If you come back to our parts department sometime, you, you'll understand. Over what, the years, I've collected a lot of the old '66s because you can't just go get parts for them anymore. Nope. Yep. 
and and we use them. I mean, we yeah, we go. They're just and I've I've seen stuff that's been harvested in other ways, and it's just not as good. As, no, they were definitely you know underneath that sixty six uh, logo on the back of the combine. It also said all crop mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sixty six all crop, and and they could they were an all crop thing. Yep, they could harvest all crop whether it come to small vegetable seeds or whatever. Yep. Interesting. And the other thing too, that, cause I used to think this before I understood it. Well, why don't we just try and get everything through a big self propelled combine? But the problem with that is some of these flowers you're dealing with such quantities. There's a lot of machine loss in a big combine like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. The bigger the machine, the more opportunities. This is yeah. all stuff Carol teaches me. Well, I, <laughs> and when you're <laughs> hoping for 10 pounds right you know or, right and yeah. so those those it gets little, lost in the machine and yep and those little all crops they they help cut down on that big time and they're easier to clean out mm-hmm. and, you know and you know you know as well as i do our you know maybe our wildflower flower field might not be any bigger than two three acres you know mm-hmm. and take a you know 15 foot head in there with a big combine it's just it's just a hard thing to thresh out. You can do it, but it's just yeah, it's yeah, not as efficient. Not as efficient as some things could be. Yep, yep. And that's and that's one of my you know, this place is to to the people who have who've come to know Hoxie and and come to be a part of this story. You know, a lot of you listening in. Uh, we just heard the other day uh, from a guy who stopped by to get some seeds. Shout out to Pete. Uh, heard heard about us on the podcast you know he was he was just enjoying being here and we had another guy a uh, former co-worker back when i was a regular just white collar person right <laughs> uh aaron you know he came by and pick up some seed and there's just there's to to see all the old equipment to be seeing it used and to be seeing the diversity of cropping and how in tune you have to be with what's going on out here you know um Carol tells me all the time, you know, Kent, you're gonna have to work Saturday sometimes because when it's ready, it's ready. Yeah, and that's true. You know, we did that a couple times yep. this fall where we just had to hit it because we had a big wind coming wind day or, coming in the next day or something. Yeah. And, so these are native plants and uh, you know, when they're ripe, it's their calling to to drop and yeah, mm-hmm. they're not like genetically modified no. to right. you know, sit on there for a long time or but right. there are there are a few species that hang on for a while but right anyway. there is a few but mm-hmm. very very few <laughs> yeah and right now here's you know three full-time employees here at hoxie and that's hard to say on a farm our size you know we're we're one of the bigger farms i'd say in the native seed business but compared to the corn and bean operations around us you know we're right. we're minuscule yeah. and if you had a loan on the farm the amount of acres we farm a family couldn't live off of right uh, isn't that crazy yep and so I, I say all this because carol's built this and he's put his i his, made many mistakes along the way there you know and for one example i can think of right now is my first little blue stem field i was gonna i harvested it and uh, had quite a chunk of seed enough to expand the little blue stems field mm-hmm. i was so excited about that and, and as a lot of you know, a little blue is very fluffy. It's got a lot of, you know, a little fluff on it. Mm-hmm. And that kind of slows it to go th- down through the native grass drills because it's just so fluffy. 
and mm. trying to plant it by itself. It it doesn't want to go down, drill it out. So, all right, I'll put that through the beater and, and beat it up. It's a process we use to take some of the fuzz off the seeds, whether it's Indian grass, little blue or big blue, mm-hmm. to uh, allow it to go through the screens on the seed cleaner so it doesn't get hanging up by the, the fluffy part of the seeds. So I hammered it in that uh, big blue stem and got it all beat up good and sent a germ test back to the a lab to check for purity and germ. Well, the purity was good, but my germ was just like Zippo. Oh. I couldn't figure out what the dickens. And a little, uh, so I called the, the lab. They said, well, it's got all broken embryos. Uh-huh. The little blue stem has a long embryo in there and very mm-hmm. fragile. And I hammered it so much that I broke the embryo in half so oh. it didn't have a chance to germ. I don't know. I never told you this story. I don't think so on the, the little blue. I mean, you've you've warned me of that about, you know, yeah. having stuff sitting there too long. Yeah, in there too long. Mm-hmm. So I broke the embryos in it so I had no seed to expand. It was just junk mm. seed. Big bum. So those are mistakes I made, and, you know, yeah, they hurt. Mm-hmm. But I learned from that, too. And, you know, that's, that's what I like about the, this business is, you know, being able to run some of this older equipment mm-hmm. and and to keep it running, to modify it, to be able to learn from my mistakes and make it go. So it's very challenging. Trying to grow the stuff, nobody would teach you how to grow it or so and how to how deep to plant it and you know mm-hmm. been fighting that over the years and, and, and what about crop insurance on if uh, yeah <laughs> there's no insurance on you stick your neck out there we try to do a crop insurance thing yeah yeah they had a the fsa office had a program for what they call it for um it's alternative farm. alternative farming crops mm-hmm. insurance take out some of the risk and it got to be so much red tape paperwork and we finally had a claim on switchgrass once we had a beating storm and knocked all off of that and and you know and then you had to prove how many pounds you got off over the past and and we land up getting basically nothing they wouldn't cover much of it so we said that's mm-hmm. enough of that and yeah told fred was in here my father-in-law that you know we're just gonna have to stay on top of things and do the best we can mm-hmm. without insurance because it's just not worth the red tape and the paperwork that went with it. And mm. So, yeah, and the challenges, you know, modifying the combines and, and the seed yeah. cleaners to handle the, the situation. So that's where I was very fortunate to, you know, have those skills and uh, to observe how the machines work mm-hmm. and how to modify it, you know, mechanically to get it to, to work better. Yeah. And, uh, so that's been very rewarding. You know, I probably could have made more money corn, bean, and things, but uh, it's I have a, you know, desire for prairie. And, you know, and my interest back in the 80s, you know, when I first got started was kind of the stepping stone to where prairie is today and how the explosion is going off with the pollinators and, you know, and the environment mm-hmm. and what it does for the the runoff for water quality and for the, you know, the habitat for, you know, nesting birds and, and deer mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. 
that's where my true interest is. And right now I really don't care that much about corn or soybeans. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it, the amount of good that this farm does is, is it's impossible to truly measure that. Yeah. Whereas, but we could try. Whereas if it was just another, you know, several hundred acres of corn and soybeans in the surrounding, you know, yeah. hundreds, thousands of square miles, millions of square miles of of uh, corn and soybeans, the, the amount of good being done here would be nothing. You know, it'd be a drop in the bucket. So, yeah, that's what I was looking at, you know, after I got through the, you know, land crisis of the mid-80s and had some ground here. And I really, you know, had my feet burnt a little bit on sticking your neck out to buy ground or even mm-hmm. rent ground. And I thought maybe if I could do a little specialty crops, stay a little closer to home and mm-hmm. uh, try to market that would be the way to go rather than, you know, rent more ground, stick your neck out there and, you know, buy bigger equipment and, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the last 10 years probably been good for the big ag or big farmers. Mm-hmm. They also get the big subsidy check, and I don't know whether they can make it go. We weren't getting that back when mm-hmm. I was real cropping, but and I don't get any today. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I'm sure the guys are asking right now, you know, with the corn prices dropped down to, you know, 450, you know, all the inputs that, have gone up as soon as corn goes up or soybeans go up all the inputs go yep. up and farm equipment goes up and you know surely i'm them guys are gonna think it over pretty good you know and mm-hmm. ask them the question you know who are we working for am i working for myself or am i working for john deere mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that is we had a farmer come in corn was 750 it was two years ago two and a right years ago, i remember this guy and and i said like well what He's like fifty acres is here. People like, well, what? Why? He's like, well, corn might be up, but we farm. We don't make any of that. He's like, I'm just gonna end up paying more to to Monsanto and and uh, right. buy more expensive equipment. He's like, the margins just aren't there. And he just he just thought it through. And he's like, wait a minute, <laughs> this yeah. isn't working. <laughs> yeah. But we also had guys sign up for uh, contracts and conservation reserve and backed out because corn prices got that's up. true. Yep. And yeah, decided you know. I'm going to take the easy money while it's here, but you know, time being all that, uh, money that they, you know, had make off those acres, you know, they're now going to, you know, the big ag machine equipment, equipment dealers and, uh, and, uh, big chemical companies. Okay. That's Mm -hmm. something I don't understand. So you buy a $150,000 planter. Why do people cash them in? And then get another, like, people are continuously, like, paying for leases. Why doesn't someone just buy it? Yeah, maybe it's expensive, but you pay it off like you'd pay off a house, and now you've got a planter that you don't have a payment on. Why do people keep work using Well, you know, a lot of the farmers nowadays, yeah, they have shops, but they're kind of what I call polishers. They're not in there rebuilding these planters. They are some. Yeah. But they want to stay, you know, they got so many acres to cover, they want to stay. Stay on top of things, uh, mm. new designs and planners. Mm-hmm. And they also have a warranty program that goes with that when they buy it that they mm. can uh, call the, the dealer and come and fix it. 
Oh, know, so like, when that warranty yeah. runs out, they're like, get this out of here. I want yeah. another one that basically they don't want to, a lot of times they don't want to work on it. They want to, they don't want to work on it. And they, you know, they're, they're drivers. They just, you know, they don't even want to drive anymore with GPS. <laughs> <laughs> Auto steer. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember even when I was in high school, there was a kid in my class bragging like, yeah, I finished my math homework while planting corn last night. And I was like, huh, oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. So they want to, you know, with combines too, they just want to keep updated on new stuff and the old stuff, you know, if it gets too old, you know, there's not a market out there for a uh, 24-row corn planter or a Because mm. uh, the row. computers, well, computers go old before axles do. Kent and I were just talking about this in yesterday's podcast. Is So, like, you know, the, the actual mechanics of a planter might be good, but your computer's crapped out, and that's right. half of the thing anyway. I don't that know. is. That's big yeah, tech that's, on that's it. It's the same thing with new cars and trucks now, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we have a neighbor up the road. Jim Milligan does a lot of my repair work, and he's, you know, he's looking at retiring here as a mechanic for a local machinery dealer. And, uh, yeah, the tech thing is just start driving you crazy after a while, and you just get tired of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's part of the problem with farmers, too. They they can't do that tech, you know, like the, the young right, farmer it's, can. It's literally a, a software. Design. Yeah, you got to have a computer. To to, yeah. That. Yeah. And uh, so that is a sad thing that, you know, that the small farmer can't fix his own stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you say, most of it goes into the tech part of the breaking mm-hmm. down. So Yeah, and, you know, I think when I talk about this stuff with with other farmers, I think most people wish it wasn't this way, that are still either in farming or connected to farming. And... Um, or if not most, a lot of them, you know, wish that it didn't, it didn't become this, but I think they also, they also feel like they're stuck in the, you know, in the system. They got into a, they got into a lane and now you got to kind of stay in your lane. And I think that that's one of the, the best things about when you made your decision to, to, nah, I'm going to, I see where this is going. I'm going to get, I'm going to try and maintain control of my own destiny so to speak mm-hmm. with farming and i'm gonna i'm gonna do something different and I, I think it's that like all those challenges that you had along the way that's really and those dollars don't necessarily show up on the bottom line but you have control of what's happening here at hoxie you know pretty well except yeah. for some of the weather things yeah, yeah. except for when those uh when that uh auto steer goes out on the 185 so yeah oh yeah that 80 year old or ken nicholas go rogue <laughs> no problem just had more hydraulic oil that's right <laughs> get your steering back that's right that's well, right those are some problems what what's the biggest high you felt Oh, biggest highs. Well, big highs have you two guys show interest in the business, I guess. Mm-hmm. And a new generation coming on, you know. And I get to the point, you know, I've been beating the door on this prairie thing and, you know, blowing the smoke about it and you know, how important it is. And see you two young guys coming in and have the same desires and, and, uh, and values of what prairie actually does for our environment. Whether it's water quality or or conservation or 
or habitat or whatever, just seeing the values of native grasses. And, the, you know, even this past snowstorm, we had uh, the values of prairie, you know, mm-hmm. for uh, live snow fence, what it does to catch yeah. snow. And it's quite obvious right here south of here where we have an east-west road and mm-hmm. have prairie along part of it. And there's no snow on the road. You get up there where I have uh, that new field of establishing field of uh, Virginia wild rye where I mowed it all year. And the the snow would just blow across there and drift shut. And they got snow pushed up on both sides. Mm -hmm. So you guys would have to look at that. And Mm -hmm. for the future of prairie, you know, and for the where it would go, I would think, you know, do some control, you know, live snow fence. Yeah. For along the fences where there's problem areas. Yeah, definitely. Even between here and Palo where you see that's on those corners where some yeah. of that snow Close why to not feet deep there. Why not put the guys in a, some kind of a grass program there? Mm-hmm. And I guess what I would really like to see happen in the prairie industry is uh farmers uh all getting subsidized now. And they don't do any supply management like it was back in the 80s when we had an idle, right. you know, 10% of our corn base to be uh, eligible for uh, the subsidies. Mm-hmm. They would do that again and get farmers to put in some more habitat, maybe on some other poor ground mm-hmm. and maybe along a road. And in order for them to get that subsidies, they would have to idle some ground to do mm-hmm. it, and that would control the supply a little bit again. So that was a good program back then till they decided to go fence row to fence row, and, and you know, and that's hurt the, the habitat. Oh, yeah. And snow drifts, at, you know, road, mm-hmm. roads they have to plow to keep the snow away so they can put a little prairie along a, a road ditch and catch the snow before it drifts onto the gravel road. and. Or they got a back hill here that uh, they, it's not very productive, put it into prairie. So mm-hmm. I think there ought to be some connection between uh, benefits of a farm program and what they're actually doing to be eligible for those subsidies. They got to mm-hmm. be showing they're trying to show some conservation and yeah. uh, idle some stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree there. It, it's and, and the beauty of it is, it's not like it's money that's not already being being put out there, right? You know? And it takes, and in a lot of ways, it takes work off the farmers because those perennial plants they'll more or less take care of themselves once you get them planted. That's right, and so if it's going to be a you know, a kind of a safety net out there for the farmers, we'll make them put a little habitat in mm-hmm. yeah and then they're eligible for that safety net and okay. and even on really crappy acres where farmers are netting 70 dollars yeah. or net negative yeah on oh, those. yeah there's a lot of I negative mean, let's say let's say on a crappy acre you net a hundred dollars right or you could put prairie there for two hundred dollars and no work you know that that's like what, mm. what, what what where's the thing there? Yeah, yeah, you're getting more corn, but you're spending extra money to get that right. corn. So there's acres out there that's not very productive, especially right. what's the cost of today's inputs to get that acre to produce yeah. high yeah. crops. And, well, and, and the you know there's great 
there's a great phrase out there. There's no solutions. There's only trade-offs. And the trade-off to, okay, I'm going to continue farming those acres in corn, even though I know it's a net zero, it's just easier because then I don't have to get another piece of equipment out here. But when you're manicuring that with, with fertilizers and with, with um, you know, different pesticides, there, yes, some of that goes and does what you want it to do, but some of it also doesn't. And it stays, you know, Nick's got the water quality episode coming on with, you know, the, the role of nitrates right. leaching into our water and stuff. You know, whereas if you left those acres. So we have 10% less of our corn acres being treated with a, a pesticide right. or or a nitrate. Right. And we don't get those, and then we don't get those negative impacts right. from that 10%. And then we also have. control the supply management there of the you know of the corn we don't yeah. really need all of that and right. the, it's worth saying we wouldn't have 10 percent less nitrates because a lot of that prairie would go right around water we'd have 50 percent mm. less nitrates because yeah, right. right. it would catch a lot of it yeah where right. that low yielding ground is yeah. is is associated with greater losses of yep yep so but that yeah that's good yeah so i think in that you know a big part of what what uh, we do is we we uh, you know we do business within the CRP program, and uh, that's been a great thing. Um, if you had one thing to encourage people on CRP enrollment and anyone who's maybe considering doing some CRP, I know it kind of goes along the lines of what we were just talking about there with idle ground, but but can you maybe uh, just uh, kind of say what what you th- what you think of crp and how that's changed through the years and well i think it's a great thing you know those are low protective ground and you know uh, i'm sure people who've got crp they they see the wildlife in there the whether it's a pollinator or whatever the bees and the butterflies you know, it's it's a bigger picture than just us raising corn, soybeans, and mm-hmm. and then manicuring the ditch. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's a bigger picture than that. More things going on. It's more complicated than that. We need other things growing mm-hmm. out there than just corn, beans, and nice mowed ditch. Mm-hmm. So we need to, you know. So that's why if the if those kind of farmers are out there, you know, and if they had a kind of a wanted a safety net, and let's let's have them also put in some some habitat, mm-hmm. and uh, whether it's CRP or or whatever, and uh, I think that would help a lot for our water quality, our pollinators, our wildlife, mm-hmm. and actually get people seeing what it's doing at to the environment on their farm rather than uh, it growing on somebody else's farm. So in other words, they more or less forced to to grow some prairie, some habitat if they're in a corn bean rotation. But, yeah. but it's hard to convince those guys who consider those strips where they're a prairie strip for, for uh, you know, runoff control. It's hard to convince them it's so much easier with a 24 row planter to just mm-hmm. to plant through those areas and yeah. not have them strips there rather than to farm around them. Mm-hmm. I see it's a nuisance, but uh, yeah, it's actually a nuisance what they're causing for, mm. for yeah. loss. That's a good point. I don't know that I've ever made that connection in my mind. You know, it seems pretty much, you know, uh, benign to have, 
bigger and bigger equipment. Okay, I get it. You know, you're farming more acres. It makes it faster for you. But there's a cost from the habitat standpoint too. And, oh, we used to be able to fit through with our eight-row planter through in between that, you know, wet spot and mm-hmm. that field terrace there. But now you can't fit through there. We Something's got to go. We're going to put a tile line and a drain in that wet spot, and we're going to drain it down to the creek. Yeah, and then maybe gonna, there's a tree on the fence line over there. We're going to take it out so we yep. can get through there. Yep. And, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've seen a lot of that on my my the own, my own family's farm. You know, the as Carol likes to say, the only deer welcome around here is a, is a green and yellow one. <laughs> <Yeah>. But uh, – <laughs> But that's, yeah. you know, John Deere disease. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Deer disease. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's part of it too, is when, when we go whole, you know, head over heels into that model, there's not only financial implications to that and loss of control that we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast and, and, uh, and, and those things, the vulnerability from the cost, but also, you know, it's a loss on the land too when, right. when we go head over here there's there's all these different costs and um you know this has been great uh uh hearing the story again and getting it recorded hopefully with a lot better audio for everyone tuning in and it's such an important story that um we wanted to throw in there one last little fact that i really want to work into this one how many acres of prairie do you think you've planted through the decades i told you we could try to uh to figure out the impact he's had. I mean, not that there's a lot of secondary impacts, but. Oh, it's, I don't know. I would just make a guess. 20,000. 20,000. Oh, and I actually planted myself maybe. Yeah. With a 10 acre or a 10 foot drill. Yeah. 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 There's several years I've done, you know, eight to the 800 to a thousand. Yeah. Nick. Yeah. yeah, and then you always do several hundred in the fall. And those are not the easiest acres to plant either, believe me. Oh, yeah, washouts. 20,000, uh, probably 12 of Trees. them were some of the worst acres you've ever seen. And, right. But yeah. and, and I would, from from my time here and seeing what, we, what we've been doing, I would say that's a conservative guess. Is 20, right. 20, I would, 000. you know, if you took the seeds I grow on this farm and oh, put it man. out on the acres, you know, uh, that'd be quite a few over the years yeah probably hundreds of thousands <laughs> so that that's kind of a you know a good sense of accomplishment you know mm-hmm. to do that for getting acres back into something that's you know our heritage here in iowa is is, is the, the prairie yeah not so much corn beans as everybody thinks it is yep yeah our seeds are going to outlast us which is right. Which is an amazing thing to consider. That's not going to be the case for corn and soybeans. Our, well, you know, there's going to be roadside ditches that my grandkids are going to drive by, and they won't know it, of course. But right. I, it could literally be plants that I clean the seed on, or I, you know, helped to harvest, or Carol right. planted, you know, the original seed stock on, mm-hmm. and 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 Nicholas put the order together for you know, like the to think of that that permanence and what we're doing that's you know there is we all three of us have probably faced levels of criticism over over uh not making you know the getting in line with the system so to speak but these are the things that there's no dollar there's no dollar amount that 
could replace what we get out of it. Right. Yeah. So I'm very thankful for you two guys in this office and, you know, and what the efforts you're putting into conservation and help grow this business on your marketing, whether it's on this podcast or YouTube, mm -hmm. your approach is, is very stat satisfying to me. And it's something I probably would never have sprung off into without your guys' help. Mm-hmm. We're honored. To, we're honored to be a part of it, and honored yep. to work here, and and uh, feel like we're doing what what we were meant to do. And you've given given an old uh, biology teacher who didn't know how to grease a combine a chance. <laughs> is, uh, Just got to buy him a white shirt. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Keep him greasing. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into this. Of course, you know it. This podcast is sponsored by and presented by Hoxie Native Seeds. And uh, I hope this story helps you connect to what it is we do and makes you want to be a part of it in some way, shape, or form. Of course, uh, if that is through putting seed on some of your own dirt. Um, you can find information on that at hoxynativeseeds.com or theprairiefarm.com. And uh, you can get seed that comes from uh, genetic lines that go back to the very remnant prairie here on uh, this farm or even just from our other production fields that we have we grow nick and i counted them the other day he, hmm. he uh, 50 species we we have here in, in production on on uh Hawks and those Eagles. are source identified seeds here too from Iowa, right yep 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 so so 50 different species uh all part of carol's legacy here at hoxie thank you so much everyone for tuning in just as uh, has been the case for Carol and all of his friends that helped him along the way, and for Nicholas and myself, you can see it very clearly. Conservation happens one mind at a time. <laughs>